0: Hello and welcome to the latest Tebby podcast brought to you by Regis Media. If you're interested in evidence-based investing and how the financial industry really works, you've come to the right place. Our guest on this episode is Stephanie Griffiths, a former active fund manager from Toronto who has just written an interesting new book called Sit Still and Prosper. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But first, Stephanie, welcome to the Tebby Podcast.
1: Oh, thank you very much for inviting me, Robin.
0: It's a long story, because I understand you were actually in the fund industry for about 20 years. You you ran your own fund for 15 years of that time. Briefly, tell me about your your career.
1: Um, Well, I started out in journalism school And partway through, um, I had a baby and I started looking for a career where I could afford daycare in Toronto. And I got into the financial services industry through sort of business journalism. And I started out at a small brokerage or small cap brokerage firm. So I was fascinated with smaller companies and that led to managing this fund. And it was extremely research based. So I found that, you know, my journalism background was a real competitive advantage.
0: Interesting. Right. OK, so you, you come from, from the same background as, as, as me then. It's a lucrative industry, let's face it, the, the, the fund management industry. You had a, a high status and presumably a, a pretty well-paid job. Um, wh- why did you decide to leave?
1: Well, um, I had a lot of help in my decision making because um, the firm that I was working for, uh, did a big reorganization and they changed uh, the mandate of the fund slightly um, and for me I had a real kind of fixation on my style where I was very inflexible and I saw there was only one way to do things and so um, I you know I, I left the firm so I, you know and, and part of it too was was as I was contemplating leaving I realized i hadn't really done anything the whole time i was managing the fund it, it, it mm. absorbed all my time i really didn't have a life well, and wow. as you say i mean there's a lot of prestige and and uh you know wealth associated with with the industry and and for me i realized i would sort of traded off a lot of things and without really being aware of it and that was my choice i mean you don't have to be a workaholic. But I, I find it in that career, it's, it's very difficult not to be kind of focusing on your fund 24-7.
0: Quite. Uh, and in the introduction to the book, you describe a rather humbling experience a, a few years ago when a friend of yours emails you for investment advice. Um, perhaps you could explain to our listeners who haven't read the book, uh, what, what happened?
1: Okay, so this is a friend of mine who's in the, uh, he's a screenwriter in Hollywood. And he's not interested in investing, but he realized that he needed to talk to his advisor. He wasn't happy with, you know, how his his investments were doing. And he asked me, you know, well, what should I do? And I started drafting this email and it was like, well, you know, first of all, you have to decide how you feel about interest rates and bonds and how much equity exposure you want. And then you have to find, you know, you have to do this research. And I mean, it just got ridiculous. And I started thinking, well, this is this is too complicated, right? You know It was all about, you know, well, you have to do this, but you have to, you know make sure you how you know how your advisors paid. And I thought, you know there has to be a simpler answer than this. That was a real eye-opener for me because I'd always just put all my own money in my fund. I mean, I had my retirement savings in my fund and my children's educational savings in my fund. And I had people say, oh, you know, that's so risky. And I said, well, you know, I know exactly what it is. That's what I do all day is managing this fund. And then, you know, helping my friend, I realized, like, how does does the average consumer, I mean, there are thousands and thousands of funds and thousands and thousands of other investments. How is somebody who's not even really that interested in investing supposed to make a wise decision? And he knew, like, he knew that his advisor was not the right one for him. And I think, that's, I think that's something a lot of people face. I mean, they suspect that, you know, their investments, there may be issues there, and then they don't have, you know, they don't have the background to look into it.
0: It does seem very extraordinary, Stephanie, that somebody like yourself, who was a, a successful financial professional, and even you struggled to actually explain in simple terms what ordinary investors should do, it's therefore, you know, especially hard for ordinary investors to, to work this out on their own.
1: Right. I mean, when I started looking into it, I mean, what what occurred to me right off the bat was, well, he really needed good advice. And I, I had at that point, I had um, taken my own money out of the fund um, that I was no longer managing. And I started looking at, you know, well, where would I get advice? And And then of course I came up against, you know, something that I'd read about and it hadn't really registered is that, you know, a lot of advisors have a very high minimum. So, and then the next thing is even if you find an advisor that you'd like to go with, then, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, you're handing off a big percentage of your assets to this person, you know, based on maybe their track record and their reputation and so forth. And I I think that it's, that's a really difficult thing to do. And the way people make decisions, I mean, this is another thing that comes up in the book, the way people make decisions, a lot of times they're not aware of, you know, the, why they're making the decision. And there's a lot of behavioral bias that, you know, that that creeps in, that people aren't necessarily aware of. You know, they they don't realize how different advisors get paid. They don't realize, um, you know, the idea of a fiduciary standard. A lot of people haven't heard about that. And I think that, you know, the, the, the media are doing a really good job right now, you know, telling people. I mean, here there's a lot of discussion about having a, you know, a basic minimum education standard. But I think across North America, in most places, you know, anyone can call themselves a financial
0: advisor. Stephanie, as, as both you and I know, very, very few funds actually do outperform the market on a risk and cost adjusted basis over the long term. Without going into details, your fund was actually very successful. Um, in the book, though, you question whether that was down to luck or, or skill. And obviously, we, we all like to attribute our success to skill, don't we? And I'm assuming now that fund managers are no exception to that.
1: Yeah, totally. Like, I mean, that was one of the things that, you know, meditation really taught me is I had this very um, strong feeling that the reason that my fund was so successful was because my strategy was so superior and my research was so superior. But in reality, there has to be an aspect of luck and i read somewhere and i don't remember the numbers how much data you actually need to determine you know with certainty that somebody's skillful Mm. and you know one advantage i had was that i had a very long track record and a lot of funds don't have that length of track record
0: there is a study in the uk that looked into that very subject, and uh, it's by David Blake and his colleagues at uh, the Penson in- Institute in London, uh, and they found that it takes 22 years to have 90% certainty that a manager has or doesn't have skill. So you're right; it, it's a it's it, it's a long time. Um, we'll we'll talk about more about active management in a moment. First. You say in the book that whether we admit it or not, human beings are by nature creatures of the casino, to use your phrase. Uh, What do you mean by that, Stephanie? Well,
1: that idea that we are really attracted by a lottery-like payoff. I mean, people... I talked to one person who is absolutely, you know, evidence-based in his heart, and he admitted to me that when he sees something in his inbox, you know promising an exciting investment opportunity i mean he has that feeling i mean your your heart kind of is tugged by that idea that i'm going to buy this you know there's this unique opportunity and if i put some money behind this i'm going to you know i'm going to you know get rich i mean that idea of get rich i mean you know when people write advertising how exciting the word free is to people
0: mm, mm. i mean
1: there is an emotional there is an emotional aspect to investing that I feel people often don't recognize.
0: Mm. I was talking to an Australian advisor the other day and he was telling me about the Melbourne Cup, their big horse race uh, event every every year. And he says literally that day or the run up to that day, everyone in Melbourne suddenly becomes an expert on, on horses. <laughs> uh even though for the rest of the year that they would say they don't know anything about horse racing at all and, and i i suppose you could say it's the, it's a similar story with investing
1: yeah i mean i think that's true i mean you look at all these different kind of fads that come up where you know everybody's talking about bitcoin or marijuana stocks or or any of these things and it is you know that attraction of the get rich quick scheme i mean and i think people have to be aware of that because a lot of times what happens is you you create all these rationalizations why this is actually you know a legitimate investment. And one of the big themes of my book is that, you know, unless you do you're doing a lot of research and you're reading the prospectus and you really know what you're doing, you're a speculator, you're not an investor. Mm-hmm. And that's just that's just a fact. I mean that goes back to like Ben Graham. And you know, people say they're gonna invest in marijuana stocks and they don't necessarily know anything about, you know, the regulation or, you know, the competitive situation. I mean, the same with Bitcoin. I mean, a lot of people, they buy Bitcoin and they consider it an investment and they don't even understand how it works.
0: So although you were an active fund manager for many years, you decided to invest most of your money in in low-cost index funds. Why was that?
1: After I left the industry, I thought, well, I'll, you know, I considered managing money on my own. And my first thought was, you know, I was at a huge disadvantage that I didn't have the same information resources, you know, as an individual versus a professional. I just, I didn't have the meetings. I didn't have Bloomberg. So I thought I'm at a huge disadvantage here. And so then I thought, well, you know, I could buy a fund. And then I started looking at other people's funds and feeling like I don't have the real insight into, you know, I'm not going to know if this person is planning to quit next week. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I saw, I actually saw some research where they said that hedge funds underperform when the manager either falls in love or gets divorced. Mm. So, you know, I'm thinking there's a lot of stuff going on here that I cannot do the research into. I know of the data about the costs. So, I mean, I had that feeling, like, I'm not sure, like, who am I going to trust with my own money? And then I started looking at ETFs, which really I had. You know, i had been really absorbed in my my own work for so long. And ETFs, I'd never really heard of them when I started out. And when I started looking at all these different ETFs, I got very interested in, you know, sort of factor investing and more, you know, evidence-based ETFs and that sort of thing. Mm. So, you know, when, when I went with my own money, I mean, I think that's really... That's really a litmus test. What do people do with their own money, right?
0: Exactly right. Exactly right. And and in the book, you describe a visit to the Bogleheads Conference. Now, I've been to one myself, but perhaps you should explain to our listeners what being at a Bogleheads Conference is like. And and for a start, who, who are the Bogleheads?
1: So, the Bogleheads are this grassroots fan club of Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, which was the first index fund company. And it's just been phenomenal um, how that company has grown. And initially when he started out, I mean, he got a lot of flack, you know, for, you know, offering people exposure to just the index. And, you know, he was accused of being un-American because they weren't you know, chasing above average performance. And these bogleheads. I mean, you know, they're, they're devoted to him because, mm. you know, their financial success is, a, you know, in response to believing in that uh, story and, and in his um, leadership in that
0: area. So from your experience of working in the active fund industry for, for, for nearly 20 years, what do active managers really think? about index funds. I mean I hear for example that a lot of active fund managers actually invest their own money in index funds. You were talking about the importance of having skin in the game, if you like, of you know, where you put your own money as a fund manager. But what do fund managers really make of of index funds?
1: You know, I have to say that you know after I left the industry when I had more time, I started reading a lot of the research on active management and, you know, how I mean, there's research that says towards the end of the year, portfolio managers that are ahead tend to lock in and, and mm. ones that are behind tend to start, you know, trying to, to do something quickly to fix their performance. And I read a lot of this research, but, you know, I have to say in my experience, most of the money managers that I know really believe in what they're doing. Mm. I mean, you know, I, I know people that they have strategies that scare me and they totally believe in them and they do have their own money i mean you know i know because i was in the small cap area i would know people that would manage small cap funds that were much more speculative in nature like especially because i'm in canada i mean i had a colleague that ran a fund that owned a lot of junior mining stocks and he was always telling me you know you really should you know you really should look at some of my holdings because they would really be good for your fund so you know most people i know really believe strongly in what they're
0: doing. But they must see this evidence. They must see the SPIVA data from S&P Dow Jones coming out every six months and the uh, Morningstar active passive barometer and so on. They must see this educational research from Chicago Business School and so on uh, that that, that keeps coming out and saying the same thing, that it's very, very, very rare uh, that a manager will outperform and it's almost impossible to actually spot one in advance.
1: Yes. And it's hilarious because what I find is that, and you know, I was, I'm, I was very guilty of this myself is that it's always the other guy, right? Like my strategy mm-hmm. is a legitimate strategy. And you know, when I have a bad year, I'm going to say, Oh, you know, well, the market was against my strategy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's a high level of self-awareness that it's possibly, mm-hmm you know that the element like i mean you just said yourself i mean the data that you need to definitively say that somebody's good at that job you need 20 years of data i mean how many fund managers have 20 years of data and you have to have a very high degree of confidence to do that job because you know you get i mean the market gives you feedback every single day so if you're insecure about what you're doing, you're just going to be jumping all over the place. So you have to have a high level of conviction.
0: So you've talked about the active managers themselves. What about fund house executives, you know, who, who've got to answer to their shareholders? We, we keep hearing that, uh, that that they're concerned about the growth of indexing. And, and Canada, as you know, has some of the highest active fund fees in the world. Uh, and, and I'm guessing then that you know, Bay Street is especially nervous about the, the outflows from active and passive funds.
1: Well, I, I feel that it's very, very healthy. I mean, one of the things, you know, one of the themes of the book is that it is, I mean, none of these things exist in a vacuum. So I think what happens longer term and what we're seeing here now is that, you know, big fund companies are getting interested in ETFs. They're getting interested in factor investing. Um, you know they're they're developing products that have a lower fee base and I think that there's the the, the really talented people on the active side they're, they'll just be fewer more talented people I mean that's how I see the future I don't you know I don't believe that these big companies are just going to sit there and you know with thousands and thousands of funds and mm you know, I, I, I really see it. I mean, I think that it's very healthy and that that, that the consumers benefit. I mean, that was the, another big theme of the book. Mm. A lot of this evolution that's going on does benefit the consumer because the fees will come down and, you know, there'll be more options.
0: Mm. So, of course, a very big part of your philosophy, is, as, as well as using uh, low-cost funds, is the importance of sitting still. You know, hence the, title of your book and also not trading and not worrying about the financial markets. Tell me about that.
1: So my job was really, was about worrying and I worried pretty much 24 seven. I worried about every single stock I owned. And I think that's important if you're an active manager, but as a human being and as a consumer, um, that's very unhealthy. I mean, ideally um, you invest your money. And I think that's, you know, the bogleheads you know, there's a fantastic group of people, but the idea that, you know, they put their money there and uh, Jack Bogle talks about too, you know, putting your money away and, and not looking at it because mm-hmm. what happens when you start looking at it is that you start thinking, well, I should do something. And as you know, the more people trade, typically what they're doing is they're destroying value. And a lot of the research, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the research on, you know, there's some research that came out a few years ago that said, you know, women, are better investors and when you look at the research, what it what it really said was that women trade less. Mm. And you know, if if you trade less, you tend to have better results. But but it's that, that human tendency to think I should do something. And and when people do something most commonly is in a downturn.
0: Mm.
1: So the more a lot of times the more activity there is, you know, the less performance there is.
0: You, you mentioned that you were a, a worrier, and, and you know you, you talk in the book about uh, the, the value to you of, of, of meditation. Um, to tell me about that and how that fits in with the sit still and prosper approach.
1: I worried a lot, and I, yeah, I am a worrier. And one of the benefits of meditation is is the clarity of well, what's really important, and that was. One of the things that really came clear to me was I loved my job. Like for years, I really loved my job. But mm. when I stopped loving it, I didn't notice. I was so, you know I was so tied into that was such a big part of my identity. And I think you know similarly, people don't have a lot of clarity, like with finance, there's certain people, they don't even want to look at it because it's like, oh, no, you know, and they you know they'll spend more time researching their cell phone plan. And if you sit down and, you t- and you're you're very clear about well what's really important to me mm. you know you know how comfortable am i with risk you know because a lot of times people think oh you know if only i had bought this or if only i had done that and you know they're fighting the last war or they're mm. making decisions i mean the big thing is how, how are you making decisions are you making decisions in a a reactive way where you're panicking or are you making decisions about, you know, what's really important here, like, you know, with financial advice, it's things like, you know, is this person a fiduciary, how much does this advice cost and things like that rather than, you know, you meet your neighbor over the fence and he tells you how he made all this money in this stock and you rush back to the house because you can't get in there quickly enough.
0: There's a very good analogy really there isn't there between sit still and prosper style investing, you know doing nothing and and meditating I mean which is effectively doing nothing and, and, and emptying your, your your mind if you like. Both of those things seem as though they should be really easy, but actually, and I, I talk as someone who's tried to learn meditation myself, not with huge success in in, in recent months, you know, it's actually very difficult
1: yeah I mean it's very difficult I mean look at you know look at what happens in a market downturn how many people swore that they had a high risk tolerance and suddenly they don't right it's very hard not to react because you're human because you have emotion it's the same you know with sitting still with your mind I mean you know I mean you know Warren Buffett always says it's it's simple but it's not easy
0: Exactly. I've got one one final question to ask. Uh, uh, and if I may play devil's advocate here, um, a little Stephanie, you know, you, you as you say had a had a well-paid job in, in active management, and you you were actually probably in a better position than most to, you know, go and and enjoy life and relax more and and and, and not have to work so hard. But but. Um, Yeah, I suppose even for investors of modest means, this kind of um, do-nothing, sit-still approach to investing, it it can still be very liberating, can't it? It just frees up uh, time and saves you from from, from stressing as well.
1: Right, I mean, I just think it's a question too of how you wish to spend your time. I mean, I know people that love chasing after some little investment idea and it's really enjoyable to them, but I think there's a lot of people who are the way that I am now is they don't really want to worry about it. So, you know, putting like, I mean, there are all these solutions, like index funds, robo advisors, you know, there's factor ETFs, there's different strategies where you, you know, you just, you don't have to worry about it. Mm. So, Mm. you know, if you enjoy picking small cap stocks, great, spend all your time on it, but it's really very difficult. And I mean, that's the bottom line for me is that if you're a real investor, it's going to take all your time. If you're really doing the research and you're really investing, it's going to take a lot of your time. And if you're a consumer, you're competing with professionals who are doing it 24 seven.
0: Exactly right. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Just a quick to please, about the book and, and where people can buy it.
1: So the book's available, um, I think almost anywhere that books are sold online, um, Amazon, uh, Book Depository, and it's available also as an ebook.
0: Okay, and it's called Sit Still and Prosper by Stephanie Griffiths. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a fascinating discussion. Um, And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Tebby podcast brought to you by Regis Media, a bespoke provider of content and social media management to financial advice and planning firms around the world. For more information about Regis Media, just visit the website regismedia.com. You've been listening to Stephanie Griffiths talking about her book, Sit Still and Prosper. Please do comment on what Stephanie's had to say, whether you agree with her or not. And please, if you've enjoyed this discussion, why not write a review? Finally, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do so. We're on both SoundCloud and iTunes. Thank you again to Stephanie Griffiths and most of all to you for listening from me, Robin Powell, and our producer, James Cresswell. Goodbye.